we're so grateful for our moms. Lord, in your divine, provident wisdom, you made man and woman. And you made them to care for your highest creation, children, family, people. And Lord, you certainly gave Adam, you gave man a role to bring you glory, but you gave a unique role to women. They represent your bride. What a beautiful job. It's a job that just everybody can't do, but a woman does that beautifully. And she exalts her Lord Jesus Christ by the way she lives her life, Lord. So I pray, Lord, you would gather these women's hearts that are here today, who are here with us or listening online, and they would set their heart upon you. They would take the roots of their lives and dig them deep down into the Word of God. And Lord, they would be a person where there's always shade and comfort. There's always fruit coming from their life for your glory, Lord. But we thank you. We thank you for biblical womanhood. May you bless and protect that teaching here as we will not give it up. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, take your Bibles and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This will be our text for today. Pastor Paul read us 10 through 17. We'll do our best to get through this. This is a glorious passage of Scripture and so much to be learned from this passage. I've entitled the sermon this, Our Identity in Christ Produces Unity in the Church. Our identity in Christ produces unity in the church. Each and every one of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are to be identified in Him. That is to be our identification. When that happens individually, each one of us identifying ourselves in Christ, oh, sweet unity comes to the church. We're on the same page. We're running together. Arms and legs and the body of Christ is being seen plainly. But that's not always easy, is it? There's so many influences on our life. So many things to find your identity in something else. I was reading a survey or, or just a report, a study that just came out, and it was on the social media craze that our world is on. And I don't want to read these statistics to say that social media isn't important. I mean, when the telephone came out, people had telephones, right? It's a form of communication. But it is interesting to see the effects that it is having on the world. The survey said this, it was just done in April, said that 3.96 billion people, there's only 7.5 billion, so over half, of, half the world's population are on social media. <laughs> That's amazing. Somebody did some good marketing. Half of the world, over half of the world is on some kind of social media. The average person has 8.6 social media outlets. The average person. I'm bringing it down. But some of you are taking it up somewhere along the line, okay? So you have 8.6, almost 9 accounts. 54.64% of 7.77 billion people in the world use the social media. 70% of United States citizens are on social networks of some sort. Some sort. It totals to 231.5 million people in the United States are on social media media. Certainly there probably is some identification issues going on there. Listen to this. 99% of all social media now is done in your hand. Everything. What are you identified with? Listen to this. Globally, the average person, so this is not just America, but the average person spends 
two hours and 24 minutes of their day on social media. If a child starts at 16 on social media and lives to 70, they spend 5.7 years of their life looking at their phone. Wow. Where is your identity? Something to think about, isn't it? But uh, um, they went on to say that Facebook is the leading uh, social media network. 76% of all females are on social media, where 72% of all men are on it. So who are you? Who are you? What gives you identity? When people look at you, whether on social media or meet you personally, who are you identified with? On what foundation is your sense of self built? Where's your worth? Who do people say that you are? Your answer, whether true or false, because you may have a false view of your false identity, it defines your life. It defines who you are. Well, there's wrong ways of defining who we are. They arise naturally in our hearts. Remember, our heart, as we read in Jeremiah 17, 10, our hearts are desperately wicked. They're, they're sick before we're saved. And so identity issues come up easily. Wrong identity issues come up easily in our hearts. And the world around us preaches and models just numerous false identities, right? You need to look like this. You need to be this. You need more money. You need this car, right? I mean, just over and over are trying to take your identity and place it in something that has no eternal value to it. So what are ways that Christians wrongly identify themselves? Well, I jotted down just a few. Perhaps you've constructed a self based on your roles. Your identity is in your role of who you are, not the Christ who put you in that role. Even good things can be taken out of context. Maybe your identity is in your accomplishment, your resume. You can say, look what I have accomplished. Here's what I have done. You might identify yourself by your lineage or your ethnic background. You might identify yourself by your job history or the school you attended. That can be a little prominent in the South. You might be identified by your status of married or parenthood or singleness. You might find that your identity. Perhaps you maybe have fallen into the identity problem of politics. And if someone was to tell us about you, they would say, oh, you are pro this, that, or them. And they would not mention Jesus Christ. Look, it's very possible that you're identified by lust. You can spend 7.5 years of your life looking at a little teeny screen that nobody else can see. Maybe that's what you're identified in. Maybe you're identified by your psychological analysis of yourself. I'm this, or I'm that, or whatever worldly term that has come up, you've tried to justify your behavior by that. Maybe you're identified by your money or your lack of it. Some people love to tell how rich they are, and some other people love to tell how poor they are. 
All of it has an identity to it. Maybe it's your achievements or your failures. Maybe it's your approval of what you want people to think of you. You've designed yourself on your social media so people would have a certain idea of you, but they really don't know the real you. Maybe you're designed by your self-esteem. The world teaches that all the time. In fact, they say most problems are just because people don't have enough self-esteem. Well, that'll lead you right to hell. You start thinking about how great you are, you won't need a Jesus. But maybe that's what's marked you. It might be just the opposite. Maybe you're known by your hatred of yourself. Maybe you don't like yourself. You might be identified though, the way you don't like what God did. Don't like your size, your height, skin color. All kinds of things that we can find ourselves not agreeing with God. Perhaps you think that your sin defines you. Maybe you're an angry person. Maybe you're an addict of something. Maybe you're an anxious people pleaser. Maybe that's how you're defined. Perhaps affliction has defined you. I'm disabled. God let this happen to me. I've had cancer. Maybe that's how you define yourself. I'm a cancer survivor. Nothing wrong with that, but is that how you want people to know you? Is that how the gospel goes out? Certainly as a venue and certainly as an area. How about this one? I'm divorced. Is that how you're defined? Well, even Christians will identify themselves in things that they think are anchored in God's word. This gets a little closer to home sometimes. I've been in church for 50 years. When there's a question in Sunday school, I always answer it. <laughs> Maybe that's your define. You're, you're proud and arrogant because you study the Bible and you know it. That's, that's your identity. Maybe you love your giftedness. God has uniquely gifted you. You're a great musician. You're a great speaker. You're a great athlete. Whatever it may be, right? You, you want to be known for that, and that's where your identity lays. Maybe you're a church leader, and you want people to follow you. Oh, yeah, you talk about the gospel in Christ, but ultimately you're after a bigger following, a bigger church, more people, more money, more influence. See, all of these things are where we find our identity and all of these things lead us from our true identity. See, God's word has mapped out a counterintuitive, a, a counterculture way of how you should be known. Our true identity is a gift from God. God chose you from the foundations of the world, He set you apart. He sent His Son to fulfill the mission, to finish the work. There, he plunged faith into your heart at that time of salvation, and you believed. He's given you a life. He's given you everything you need. First Peter says that he's given you everything you need for life and godliness to bring glory to him. He's given that all to you, and he has an eternity ready for you. That's, that's identity. And yet, our hearts are pulled away. They're pulled away. And you know what the effects of identity misunderstanding of our identity, what it does, it destroys unity. A wife who loses her identity will destroy her family. A husband who loses his identity will destroy her family. Members of a church who get lost in some kind of identity with following somebody, they'll actually bring destruction to the church. 
But this morning what I want to do is show this passage, because remember we were talking about 1 Corinthians. There are tremendous difficulties in this church. And Paul wants to deal right off the bat with a problem of identity and unity. What was leading to all of their other problems. And so he takes on two main subjects. Your identity and unity in Christ and your love for the local church. Those are the two things I want to look at. I'm going to look at them through four points here. Number one, the plea for Christ-centered unity. Look at verse 10 with me. The plea for Christ-centered unity. First, uh, First Corinthians 1, verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no division among you, that you be made complete in the same mind, in the same judgment. Now I want to exhort you, brethren. What a statement. It tells us that he's preaching, he's teaching, he's writing to believers, right? He's writing to those who at least profess that they're Christians. And this word, exhort, a beautiful word. It comes from the, uh, the Greek word, the root of it, paraclete, where we get this comforter, term comforter. And it basically means I'm going to come alongside you in a loving way. I'm here to lovingly come alongside you because you need help in this area. So Paul's goal was to help the church in Corinth to correct many of their sinful habits, none of least were were identity issues and unity problems they had in the church. Please don't check out with me today. Because as we go through this, I promise you, every one of us, myself included, have identity times of struggles. (laughs) And we have unity problems because of that. And so I ask you to listen because he's going to deal with this. Notice in the opening verse, Paul has opening verses. He's already established his apostolic authority so he can say what he needs to be said. And he appeals to them to listen, to participate because of the gospel. He says, you have been confirmed. You have been established in God. You've been established in Christ. Christ suffered for you, captured you, made you his child. And with that in mind, I want to challenge you, exhort you, lovingly encourage you along this way. And so here he says, brethren, listen, there's some issues. We need to deal with this. Notice he says, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this is the motivation, right? To break down the problems of disunity and and establish true unity. Verse 9, he says, look, God put you in fellowship with his son, right? You're in koinonia with him. You have this unbreakable bond with the Lord Jesus Christ. So look, we've got to glorify him in our lives. This morning, are you missing harmony in your life? Harmony is a word we don't use as much, but I think it's a beautiful word. Nothing better when you hear a quartet of men or women singing in harmony. There's nothing better when a choir hits that harmonic tune that just hits your ear just right. It is sweet, and they are absolutely together on every note. Are you in harmony today? with Christ and those around you? Do you desire true unity in church, in marriage, in home? One of the things he's going to teach us that is only found in the glory of Christ. That's why he says, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by his glory, I'm going to appeal to you. I'm going to exhort you in his glory. It's not because I'm Apostle Paul. It's not because of Paulos or Peter. It's not because you've all said and be going, oh, all I need is Christ and I don't need any of you. It's not because of that. It's because of his glory. Is he worth it? Listen, brothers and sisters, you've heard me preaching for quite some years. I will preach till the Lord takes my breath away that the glory of God is what motivates our life. 
The glory of God is seen in the face of Christ. And once you've been captured by him, there's nothing in your life that cannot be beat. It cannot be beat or or understood or lived with, with, with contentment. You can find contentment when you understand the glory of Christ. And Paul is pleading with them this name, this Christ, this glorious one, all that he represents, all of his character, his perfect will, this is the way we're going to tackle this. And this is the way we'll tackle it this morning. Christ's glory affects the way we think. I hope you understand what I'm saying. It's when a song is saying, oh, magnify your name, oh, magnify Christ. But does that grip you or is that just a good catchy tune? Is that what you want to do? So when we start to magnify Christ, it changes what we think, what we say, what we do, and how we take care of each other. His glory leads us to the word of God. It leads us to our interpretation of the word of God. And it causes us to rightly divide it. And it causes us to rightly conform to him his image and treat one another the way he intends us to. Now certainly, look, sin causes division and discontentment with churches. Church leaders and fellow believers, there's, there's barriers that get down. The veil, gets, the veil gets laid on the gospel when people are not, dis, are not content with what God has given them. But far worse than this disunity is dishonoring Christ, right? So what happens is when we are not content with what God has done, we have not identified ourselves and where God has brought us and, and in His Son, we bring dishonor to the Lord. And so Paul says, look, I want the name of Christ to be glorified. See, Jesus died for our unity. He died for our identity. And listen, Satan fights against both those. Satan hates unity. He despises that you are identified in Christ. And his goal is to destroy all of that. Spurgeon said this, speaking on the subject, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. He hates unity. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. And anything that takes away the glory of Christ, he revels in. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. See, Satan desires for your unity to be in everything but Jesus. He doesn't want you to search the scriptures. He doesn't want you in the word. He wants you on your social media, 2.7 hours or whatever it was. I can't remember what it was. He wants you rather there. As good as that can be, and I love it because I can see my grandchildren. But he wants you there. He doesn't want you in his word, in God's word. So Paul's message this morning in this passage is written to the local church, the church in Corinth. So it's written to our church. We're a local church. And it's appealing to the, uh, to the unity of the local assembly of the believers through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in this verse, look at this. It says that you all agree. It's an interesting phrase. I think actually King James probably did a, a little better job on the translation of this, um, written so many years ago. But it says King James used the word for speaking, that you speak to one another in a way. It's lego is the verb there, the main verb here. So we, we understand you speak in agreement I think the translation that you all agree is a good translation, but, but it, has a, it has something that comes from us, that we speak and we are in agreement together. Listen, what a poor testimony of a church when, when those who have heard the gospel speak in conflicting ways. They're not harmonious. See, a healthy, harmonious 
effective church finds its unity and its identity in something that's unmovable, Christ and his word. A church built on what people think of them and their numbers and their buildings and the color of whatever this is, and we do all this and do all that, they will quickly lose their unity and their identity, and Satan will have their way with them. There's no greater source of unity for the church or for us individuals as families than the harmonious gospel. The gospel always brings us together. Maybe you've heard this phrase, can't we just all get along? People have said that in the church. I've had so many people say, well, doctrine shouldn't be so important because it just divides. I've heard people say that too many times. Doctrine divides. And I said, you are so right. Doctrine divides. And look, if you want unity, it's going to come through several things. It comes through not compromising. Compromise will always bring disunity, no matter what they say. And so a good church that cannot, a, a church that, that can doctrinally agree has what we call doctrine integrity. When you go to our website, you will see a doctrinal statement that is lengthy. It has a tremendous amount of verses in it. Um, we took a lot of time and a lot of effort to write that. We want people to know right up front what we believe. Often I get phone calls and someone is moving somewhere and they think that they should move there and yet they've never seen where they should go and find a church. So they say, Pastor, can you help me find a church? I'm moving there. I think that should have been one of the reasons for moving, but we'll talk about that later. So I go on a website and I start looking. And here's a church with five sentences, small, on what they believe. Look, doctrine brings us together. We believe in the all-sufficient word of God. It is infallible, inerrant, all-sufficient for everything we need. We believe in the Father who caused us to have life. He planned life. He gives life. He elects us to salvation. We believe in a son who accomplished that. And you can just go on and on. A doctrine brings us together. And so listen, there can't be, there can't be compromise in doctrinal integrity. You can't compromise on the foundation of the word of God. And listen, you cannot compromise on our relationship to one another because that robs glory from God. And that's what unity does. Too many people are trying to their whole goal is to get more people to their church. Our goal is to exalt Jesus Christ through his word, through song, preaching, and fellowship. We don't hide that. We're going to preach to you for an hour. Six people just left. We believe in it. We believe that God charged us to preach the word of God, that that's what we need. And we have to balance out the 2.7 hours of FaceTime, um, uh, Facebook and all those other things in order to help us rightly divide the word of God. Notice that he says this at the end of the verse. He says, and there be no division among you that you may be complete in the same mind in the same judgment. Now, the word division is an interesting word. We get our English word schism from that. The Greek word means to tear and to rip and to separate from one another. And Paul knew the power of schisms, right? He knew how they were contrary to the scriptures, how Satan used them to lead people to serve themselves and not serve Christ, lead them to serve themselves and not serve others. He understood that. He knew that. Writing from Corinth back to the Romans, Romans, he said this, Romans 16, 17, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye 
on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. You know, it's one of the reasons we practice church discipline, not because we like it, (laughs) but because God says that it will break your unity when you allow sin in the church and you don't deal with it. One of the things that brings great unity is obedience to God's word, and even church discipline becomes part of that, isn't it? So the Bible teaches that there's no room for sinful division because to divide over the scriptures is to divide over God. So we have a right, we we have a correct, a biblical hermeneutic so that we can look at the Bible, understand its single interpretation, though it has many applications. Do you understand that? We don't look at the Bible and say, well, there's multiple interpretations to that. No, there isn't. That's just us not working hard enough to find what God was telling us. Now, there may be many applications because we all have different areas of things going on in our life, but there is one single interpretation to that text and we need to get there. See, that brings unity. So we can say with confidence, this is what the Bible says. So this is the way we're going to live our lives. We have confidence that. See, if you don't believe that, we're in trouble. The whole marriage issue is going to wipe out churches. Wipe them out. Because they don't believe the Bible. They don't understand the interpretation of the scriptures. They're going to redefine marriage, redefine genders. Churches are doing it already. We're seeing it all the time. You know one of the things that will keep us together? Our view of biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. We believe that pictures the gospel. And so we don't trample on that. Notice this phrase, made complete. It's a Greek language. It gives the idea of repairing nets or broken bones here, right? And so the basic idea here is that Christians are to stay complete together. It's a perfect passive, meaning God, something God did in the past it has eternal ramifications. So he saved us and he put us together and he called us his children and his family. And he hates divorce and he does not want us to separate. He wants us to be uni- unified and he wants us to be identified in Jesus Christ. Now, both God's will and his word are for his children to be of the same mind and the same judgment. And look, that'll solve so many problems in unity. It brings harmony. He's going to go on in 1 Corinthians 12. We'll get there. And he's going to say, he's going to try to teach them, we, the church, are a picture of the body of Christ. And they'll say in there, if the ear says that I'm not, oh, I'm not the foot, or the foot says that I'm not this, he's showing, look, you guys are so divided because you want to do what you want to do over here, and you want to do what you want to do over here, and you have no unity, your identity is not in Christ, and you are not displaying the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God's goal is unity. It's it's beauty and harmony of the body of Christ. When the arms are swinging, the legs are running, that's what you see. You see this body that's working. Eyes are at work. Ears are listening. Toes are grabbing. Everything's functioning together. That's the goal. Are we there yet? Probably have some work to do, don't we? But we keep going forward. We believe the word of God. So we accept these, and we accept each other because Christ accepted each other. Notice this phrase, same mind and same judgment. I just want to close this point out with this. I think this is fascinating. In the same mind would mean that the church is thinking the same, thinking correctly, thinking biblically of what glorifies God in doctrine and practice. We think biblically. We think biblically doctrinally, which leads to our practice. See, because we have a standard that's not shifting. The world has a standard. Go watch old movies and see how they talk about husbands and wives. Go watch how they view the role of a woman and the role of a man. Uh, We were watching one the other day. We're going, oh, yeah, they're going to throw this movie out. I mean, the world's always shifting, right? It's constantly shifting. 
We think biblically. And the Bible doesn't change. It's right thousands and thousands of years ago as it was written by, by men that God inspired through the Holy Spirit, and it's right today. So a church that has unity, and if you want to have right identity of who you are in Christ, think biblically. You're going to have to deny yourself because your mind is always telling you, oh, you're right and he's wrong or she's wrong or it's wrong or they're wrong. You've got to think biblically. Notice the next one, it says the same judgment. Well, that means that you are thinking biblically so you made biblical decisions that glorify God in, in doctrine and practice. So right thinking lives to right decisions. Does anybody like making bad decisions? I've made a few. About a truck one time, that was a bad one, huh? <laughs> We've all been there, right? You've made some bad decisions in your life? If you go back and examine that decision and examine the scriptures, you go, number one, I never examined the scriptures on the decision. And you'll realize how far and how wrong I was according to scriptures. So biblical thinking leads, leads to biblical decisions. That's where you find unity. Show me a mom and dad who think together who love the Lord, who, who suffer with each other, quick to forgive one another, who turn to the word of God for direction in their family. Show me that couple, and I'll show you a couple that makes really good decisions. You, you want to be around them. You want them as your friends. You want them in church. You want them in church leadership because they're thinking biblically. Two, that was the longest point, but we've got to get going here. Two, truth is veiled when our identity is found in people and not in Christ. Oh, look at verses 11 and, 10, 11 and 12. For I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Well, stop right there. This verse is setting up the context. Look, I love you. You're establishing Christ. But here's what I'm hearing. This isn't matching up. And I, and I think what Paul's doing here, this isn't hearsay here. Pa Paul's receiving firsthand information from this woman, this Chloe and her people, that's coming back to him that there's great divisions there. You know, say, well, who was Chloe? Well, we really don't know, but here's what we think she is. She's probably, here's what I, actually, let me tell you what I think she is after my study about her. I think she's a member of Ephesus, but I think she has business. Her family business is in Corinth, which would make sense because that was the kind of the business capital. Everything from the world was coming through there. And she probably traveled back and forth from Ephesus to Corinth. And, and like anybody, when I go out west, we go to certain churches that we love to fellowship with that are like-minded. So we go fellowship with them while we're there, when we go see our children and so forth. We visit them, but then we come back here because this is our church family. Well, this is what I think is happening. I think Chloe dropped in at Corinth, and she said, uh-oh, that's a mess. And she comes back and says, Paul, man, I don't want to be a tattletale, but... Those people are lining all their affairs up under everything other than, than Jesus Christ. They're all totally into factions. Who follows who and who follows this and I'm following that. And, and she comes back, her family, and warns it. Paul, there's a problem over there. And so he's dealing with this. He's responding. Any good shepherd. And, we, and look, sometimes stuff gets said to us. We make sure it's true. We, we check our boxes. It's not gossip and so forth. So Because we hear there's a problem in your family. We want to come help, Right? Sometimes we hear that through another source and we'll, we'll, we'll pray about it, we'll work through it because we want to make sure that that's something and then maybe we'll come and say, hey, how are you guys doing? Are you okay? We heard you're going through a struggle. See, this is the way that works. It's not gossip. It's caring for them. I think Chloe was someone who was, who was with Paul's ministry and she was caring for them. But notice the word quarrel. He says there's a quarrel. The word means strife or wrangling. 
in the cowboy world, we wrangled horses in the morning, and that means they're probably green, and they're hard to catch, and they really don't want you on the back. So they'll buck a little bit, and there's struggles, and you wrangle with them, right? This was what's going on. This church is bucking. It's fighting. It, has, it does not have a nature of unity. There's division within it. And at the heart of those quarrels is factionism. Who follows who? They have a problem with identity. Look at verse 12. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, this is a direct statement, I'm of Paul, I am of, of Apollos, I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Well, Paul and Apollos were both former pastors, right? We know Apollos came in and pastored there for a while. Paul certainly planted the church in Acts 18, was there for a year and a half. Cephas, or Peter, is a disciple of Christ, the first preacher of the early church. And then you have Christ, and that one I think is probably worse than any of them, and I'll explain that in a minute. Now, he says this. There's, there's many divisions among you, and, and I think here's why we start to understand. First, there would have been divisions between Gentiles calling themselves disciples of Paul and Jews calling themselves of Peter following Peter. See, Paul was sent to the Gentiles. He went to, the, he went to their Sabbath days. He went to their synagogues. They rejected him, rejected him, rejected him, and he went to the Gentiles. So the Gentiles are going, hey, yeah, you Jews, you rejected Paul. We're with him. And then you have Peter, whose ministry was predominantly to the Jews. Um, later on, he was given a vision. He went to see Cornelius and his family, and he began to understand that the gospel was going out to the Gentiles' world, but the Jews would have claimed Peter. Second, you have Gentile converts who were divided over Paul and Paulus. And probably here they're divided because Apollos was attractive. Apollos was well-educated, and he used oratorical perfection like the Greeks were used to. He was very well-educated in literary culture and eloquence, and he spoke from his high-educated background, and the Greeks loved that. The Gentiles love that. Paul confesses in chapter 2, when we get there, he says, look, I didn't come with superior speech or wisdom. So, so you have people going, well, Mr. Stumbler and Bumbler over here, we're not with him. We're with the guy who can really turn a phrase. And, and even their gifts are separating them. How sad was that? Paul confessed that, Look, I, I, I don't have that superior speech, but here we see arrogant converts. Their identity is in men. Their identity is in gifts, not in Christ. And so they reject a subpar preacher like Paul. Many of these had rejected Paul as an apostle because they, they undervalued him as a preacher. They would say, oh, you weren't with Jesus. And, and, and of course, you're not as fluent as the others. Third, we find Peter, who would have been embraced by some of the Jews and rejected by others. So even the Jews would be divided with Peter. Some would recall that he denied Jesus. And remember, Christians sometimes don't forget. They may say they forgive you, but they don't forget. And that's wrong. Hey, weren't you the guy that denied him not once, not twice, but three times? Doubtless Peter ran into it. And then Peter has a struggle in Galatia, Right? You know what? They probably heard about that. Oh, Peter, sounds like you were hanging out with the Gentiles, eating their food, doing all that, until the Jews showed up. And then all of a sudden, you switched. And Paul has to write in his letter about his rebuke of you. You can see where they're just, all kinds of problems are coming. Other Jews would have followed him because he was with Christ and the original disciples and deemed him an apostle, but reject Paul because he wasn't with Christ. 
Oh, Paul, you're, you can't be of Christ. You weren't with the original 12. Fourth, and then this is the group that scares me the most. This is the group that says, oh, we're of Christ. And you go, well, wait a minute, Scott. Isn't that what we're supposed to be? Maybe you thought, hey, the first three are bad. The last one was good. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think this Christ-only group means we don't need any teachers. We don't need you. We got Christ. You know, today, in today's church, how many people don't go to church and get online and just watch the super pastors? There were super apostles in Paul's day, but now they're super pastors. Men, some of them are friends of mine, and I love them dearly, but they've been elevated to this unbiblical position, and people go, I don't need a church. I don't need elders snooping into my business. I don't need hypocrites. I would say, well, come join us. You sound like one. And so, so they stand off, and now their church is internet, right? Hey, I got Christ. I'm positioned in Christ. And they'll even speak very doctrinally, and they'll know passage scriptures, but they have nothing to do with the local church. That's who I think Paul is. See, these people want no submission. They want no unity, and they want no distinction of the local church. This letter was written to who? Corinth. The local church in Corinth. Paul wrote to a church in where? Ephesus. He wrote to Philippi. He wrote to the churches in Galatia. This is the local church, and Christ loves the local church, and guess what he does? He gives the local church what they need. So Paul later in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28 says this, God has appointed in every church first apostles, second prophets, and third teachers. In Ephesians 4, where he was writing from Ephesians to Corinth, this letter, he says in verse 11, He, God, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, for the building up of the body of Christ. But there were people here that said, look, I don't need you. I don't need your leadership, and I don't need your problems. I'm going to worship somewhere else. But each group has become extremely vocal. Their loyalties are causing their identity problems and the unity problems. They're clinging to men and not Christ. Now, let me just say this real quickly. I don't want you not to be grateful for the people in your life that God has put there to help you love him. I am very grateful for my mom, as I said. I'm very grateful for my mentors in my life who raised me in the ministry, taught me languages, taught me how to study the Bible, taught me to love the church. I'm very grateful for that. We all have people who taught us the word of God and shepherd us. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about people who exalt men to an unbiblical level that they, some of them don't even want. I know some of them, and I've talked to them about this issue. And they said, that's the last thing we want. We don't want ite put on the end of our names. But see, man always wants to identify with something other than Christ and his church. They want to find some man, some woman, somebody. So today we don't have super apostles, we have super preachers. <laughs> and many Christians have just elevated to this unbiblical status. And so They'll leave the church. We've had people leave this church because they listen to somebody who is thousands of miles away. They have no relationship with that church, no relationship with the leader. But because there was what they thought a disagreement, they leave the church. And you go, hey, how, how do you prove that biblically? So, so here there's this problem. What I'm trying to give you is this, there's a division coming. And when division comes, that means identity is wrong. They found their identity in the wrong place. Look, I'm grateful for the Spurgeons of old, and I'm grateful for the Spurgeons of today. But you know who I submit to? My pastors. 
God gave me eight other elders who I submit to. They are my pastors. They pastor Scott because he needs it. (laughs) He doesn't have it all figured out. You can ask Gina. (laughs) I need help. And so we submit to one another, and God placed us in your life for you to submit to us so us, so we can lead you to Christ in the truth of his word. That's the way the local church works. But that's not what was going on in Ephesus here. Misuse of biblical truth, of what God says, will always lead to selfishness and pride. When we surrender to God's word, we'll find peace, we'll find unity, we'll find contentment. Third thought, identity in Christ produces oneness in the church. Identity in Christ produces oneness in the church. Look at verse 13. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Well, here he gives these great rhetorical questions, right? So first we have to identify our own position, right? I wrote down a few thoughts to identify me, right? Scott confesses that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. I confess that Jesus Christ came from heaven, from the plan of God. He's fully God, but submitted to his authority, added flesh to his nature, came here, lived a perfect life, and died for Scott. And beat sin, beat death, beat Satan, came out of the grave, now sits at the right hand of the Father, waiting to make me at his table with his Father, there to serve him forever. See, that's a confession, right? That's my biblical identity. I know Jesus redeemed me from all of my righteousness. I know he cleansed me from all of my sins. And I know he set me apart. He does not want me to find my identity in the world. He wants me to find my identity in Jesus Christ. I believe that. And see, all these claims come from Christ. But notice the rhetorical questions that Paul has to ask. Now, let me, as I read this again, the answer is no. (laughs) In case you didn't catch it. But has Christ been divided? See it there in verse 13? He's asking a rhetorical question. Has Christ been divided? Oh, of course not. Christ is incapable of this sinful division, right? There can't be anything but Christ that unites the church. Has Christ been divided? He's with that group over there, and he's with this group over here, and so forth. No, God is is a God of unity. And so Christ is a God of unity, of course. And he hates division. I was reading my personal reading through Proverbs this this week, and I came to Proverbs chapter 6, and boy, it's a passage that you just have to go read every once in a while. There it says, six things God hates, yea, seven. Do you think it's important to understand the things God hates? We know the things he loves. He loves us, for God so loved the world. We just sang that song. He loves us. But there are certain things he hates. There are six of them, and they're very good for you to look at, but the last one is this. He hates disunity. It reads this way. Anyone who spreads strife, the word Hebrew word means division, discord, or conflict among the brethren. You want to play around and cause strife and disunity? God hates it. He hates it. I don't know how many times I've warned people through the years, oh, please, I know you don't like me, or or maybe you don't like this church, but I beg you, do not sow the cords of disunity. God will not put up with it. I've watched people who have attacked the church through years. Just not good things happens to their lives often. God loves his church. 
He hates disunity. If you're so in disunity at, at church or your home or wherever else, you need to know God hates it. And I think there's a micro to that, right? So it starts in the home. The micro aspect of this is you and I, Gene and I, our relationship at home needs to be unified in Christ. So when we're unified and we come here and we become a part of you and you're unified, then we have a church that God says, look, I can do great things with this. And I will do great things. That's the macro side of it, right? So the micro is you and I living for Jesus Christ. The macro is that now we have a church that honors the Lord Jesus Christ. So disunity is contrary to the Lord's nature. He never divides his bride. He doesn't share it with anyone else. Third, I mean, next you see Paul where he says, was Paul crucified for you? Was he? <laughs> In other words, Paul's saying, look, did I redeem you? Did I purchase you with my own blood? And you belong to me now? No, no, and no. <laughs> He's trying to get them to realize there's nothing we humans can do in order to, to bring you to, to God on our own. We carry the message of the cross. That's what we do. And so there's such, no such relationship between a teacher and the doctrine of justification, right? So what he's saying, as a teacher, as a pastor, as a leader, church leader, I cannot justify you. There's only one who can do that. It's Jesus Christ through his finished work declares you righteous. God does it through his work. Next verse, notice this, and this is a very important phrase here. He says, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Well, there's two things about that verse. One, it shows that baptism isn't salvation, right? Because he's already talked about your position, your fellowship with Christ. He's shown that baptism cannot save you. Baptism is a result of salvation. It's identification, Next Sunday night, there's going to be people standing in the waters of baptism over in this pool behind that curtain, and they're going to say, Jesus, save me. And here's how I know. And they're going to share the word of God, what God showed them through the word of God, that God has transformed my life, and I've been identified in Christ, and I'm no longer dead in my sins. I'm alive, and now I'm identified with you. I'm part of you. And that's what they're going to say. So Paul is saying two things here Baptism is not part of salvation. It's an identification. And notice it's not done in his name. He says, this, I'm not taking any of that glory. You, I can't identify you in Christ. That's what God does. God identifies you in Christ. And so, of course, physical baptism represents the spiritual identification in the Lord Jesus Christ. My time's running from me, but I want you to write down a verse, and I want you to look at it today. John chapter 17, verse 20 through 23. Jesus is in the high priestly prayer, right? The night before his death. He's there in the garden, um, separated from his disciples. He's praying. And we believe 17 fits in that, that, that paradigm of Christ um, right before his death. And there he's sweating drops like blood. And he is beseeching his father. And John 17, the other gospels don't tell us what he was praying fully. It talks about the fulfilling of his God's will versus his. But that, that passage tells us exactly where he was praying. And in John chapter 17, he says in verse 20, saying, look, I want you, Father, to make them, and he says, not only the disciples, but the ones who will hear what they have to say, he says, I want them to be one like you and I are one. Boy, I studied that passage this week, and it just blew me away. You know how you get lost in some spiritual rabbit trail sometimes. I just found myself in that text going, Lord, you desire this for marriage. You desire this for church. You desire this for any organization that calls themselves the bride of Christ. You desire for us to be one like the Father and the Son are one. Can you imagine that Trinitarian 
type of love and oneness with one another? That's what God wants. That's what God wants out of us, and he's desiring that. And and that's what Paul, he says, look, fractions, these factions that divide the flock here, they veil the truth of the gospel. So look, if you, you decide to go on to some little tent, you know, running after some doctrinal heresy or something like that, and this group over here runs after that, and that group goes after that, guess what's going to happen? Factions. And guess what's going to happen? Somebody out of this group and that group, they're going to start leading you. And that's what happens. That's exactly what's happened to this church in, in Corinth. And so Paul is saying, look, all of this is wrong, and this is not of the Lord. It divides. It doesn't bring together. Look at our last point here, four. The unifying priority of preaching the cross of Christ. Look at verses 14 through 17. Actually, just 14 through 16. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Now, let me stop there and just kind of giggle a little bit. I love the doctrine of inspiration because you see it in this passage. What the doctrine of inspiration says is that God writes every word through these people, through these men, but he uses their personalities. I love Paul here. He's so funny. He goes, look, I didn't baptize any of you. Well, wait a minute. I think I baptized Crispus and Gaius and Stephanos. I don't think anybody else, but here's what I'm really here for. <laughs> Can you see his character coming out? He, he's, he's not, what he's doing is I'm not attached to their salvation in that way. I, I, may, have, I may have baptized some people and a, a few of them, but I'm here for the cross of Christ. That's what he's trying to make clear. So one, he's saying baptism isn't salvation. Baptism is publicly identifying you with Christ and his church, but I am here to preach the gospel. That was Paul's heart coming out of the text. Crispus, again, remember him, he's the leader of the synagogue. He got converted in Acts chapter 18. Paul most likely baptizes him because he sets the example. He's the first convert, it seems, in Corinth. So he says, let's baptize you and let all of the Christians that come behind you follow that example. And so Crispus was put into the waters of baptism. He says, I am, I am now a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's probably much like Lydia. He was a devout worshiper of God. He was a Jew. He knew the Old Testament, but he did not connect it to Christ. And so Paul comes, preaches the gospel, he gets saved, and so Paul takes him in the waters of baptism, and here's Crispus that probably says, look, I, I thought I understood this. I thought I had the kingdom of God, but I didn't have it. In fact, I had the judgment of God upon me until I understood that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, and he is the only way, the truth, and the life. And he probably publicly bore witness to that, and God saved him. Gatius is probably um, the man who hosted Paul in Corinth. There's evidence of that as he writes about him at the end of book book of Romans. But Paul did not want to create his own following here. Notice that he says that that no one would say to you that I baptized in my name. He does not want that to be known. So in 15, he says, look, don't, don't put me in my name. Now look what he's really after. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Well, this is the main reason Paul baptized so few converts in Corinth. Paul was not sent to start his own following, but Jesus Christ personally commissioned him to preach the gospel. That's what he was sent to do, preach the gospel. Listen, brothers and sisters, anytime we proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ, it brings you together. I watch it. 
I listen to your comments afterwards. I, I, I see the effects in your marriages and your family. When we preach the gospel, it brings you together. All the things of the world, for just for an hour or two in this room, seem to fade away for a little while because the gospel takes center stage for us. Now what we have to do is take the gospel with us out those doors, right? And let it unify our homes. Let it unify our businesses and our places of how we work and where we work and what we do with our gifts. That's what needs to happen. Paul stood before King Agrippa, and I just want to read you um, just an account real quick because he really says, this is why, here he says, look, I didn't come to baptize, I came to preach the gospel, not in some cleverness of speech. I want to read to you as he stands before King Agrippa what he says. Acts chapter six, uh, 26, 15 through 18. He's telling King Agrippa this, right? He's in, he's in court. There's people that want him dead. So he stands up before the king and he says this. And he said, the Lord said, so he's talking about what happened to him in Acts chapter 9 when, when Jesus knocked him off his, his steed and blinded him with that light and showed himself. So he says, he says, this is what happened. The Lord said to me, I am Jesus who you persecute. And then Jesus said this, but get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appealed to you, I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which will appear to you. Remember, he takes him out in the desert for three years, and Paul goes to seminary with Christ. That would have been awesome. 17, rescue you from Jewish people, they were trying to kill him, and from the Gentiles, they were trying to kill him, and whom sending you. Now here's why he's being sent. To open their eyes so that they may see, may turn from the darkness to light, and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith. That's why Paul came. That's why Paul came to Corinth. That's what drove Paul's preaching. That I would be cleansed from sins, that you would be cleansed from sins, not caught up in these factions. Well, the Apostle Paul's leadership and authority was, was centered on the preaching of the gospel. I'm going to close with an analogy. Maybe that might help uh, this morning, one I give often in, in counseling. As I grew up, I thought, well, I need to keep my priorities right. Part of my problem is my priorities aren't right. Do anybody have a problem with priorities sometimes? Now listen to this. So I was like a lot of people. I said, okay, God, you're first. You know, and then Gina, and then the boys, and the church, and work, and that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Right? God first? Doesn't that sound right? Does it work? It doesn't work. You know what, putting God first doesn't work. Yeah, because I'm human. I can't keep him up there. So here's what I did. I drew a circle on my piece of paper one day, and I wrote Christ. And I put a circle there, and then I took Gina, and I put her in there. And I said, Lord, be the center of Gina and I's relationship. And, and, and then I took the boys, and I said, Lord, be the center of my relationship with my boys. Everything I say and do with them May it be captured by Jesus Christ. I put my job in there. Difficult job at times. I was planting churches, cowboying, trying to scratch out a couple of nickels to pay the bills. Hard. Lord, I, I want you, my job, you to be the center of that. And I put the church, and I put a lot of things in there. And then when I failed, I went back to that drawing and go, why did I try to find my identity in something else? Because somewhere along that line, I said, Christ isn't enough, and I tried to deal with that issue out here. Out here, in here is the safety of Christ, it's the gospel, it's peace, it's knowing direction, it's understanding what God wants for my life. Out here is where I try to find my identity outside of him, and this always fails. Let me ask you this morning, what's outside of that circle in your life? 
All of us have. I mean, we do it. I promise you, I do it. And I'll go, oh, Lord, I tried to find my identity in the size of a church or what people thought of me. And all I found was emptiness in that. I repent. I repent of that, Lord. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. I want my ministry squarely centered on your son. See, the identity starts to come back right. Oh, Lord, my marriage is struggling. It's not where you want it. I, I've worried about it. I've tried to fix it. I've tried to manhandle it. i tried to make it the way I think it should be, and it's failing. Oh, Lord, I want my marriage centered in your son. Will you help me stay there? Will you help me look at aspects of my marriage, take it out and go, is it of Christ or is it of me? See, uh, that changed everything. And, and look, I'm, I'm confessing to you, there are times things get out here and I realize my identity is not in Christ there and I've got to repent of that. So let me ask you this morning. Let me ask you this morning. Where do you need to repent this morning of where your identity is not in Christ? There's nobody in this room outside of the Spirit of God who can answer nothing. Every one of us have an identity issue. There's somewhere where we find our identity lacking. And so let me ask you, what is your identity in besides Jesus? Do you know? I'm asking you to think. I'm asking you to pray. Where is your identity at? I promise you, if it's not in Christ, all of this will be destroyed. It'll all fall apart. And it'll hurt people so bad that you never even dreamed you would hurt them. Because trying to live like a Christian with your identity in the world and not in Christ just brings destruction, separation, and division. So identify it. Are you willing to confess pride this morning? Because I'll tell you, every time I found that my identity was outside of that circle of Christ and outside here, I realized there was great pride that came with it. I was far more concerned with my own glory or my own hurt or my own problems than I was God's glory. And so you learn to confess a pride. Where do you need to confess a pride in your life? What's tearing you away from the glory of the Lord? What's so important to you that you have to be identified in this area? Are you ready to give it up? Three, are you willing to admit that your struggles have been because of misplaced identity? I want you to get that down because you might need to talk to the Lord today. You might say, Lord, I want your forgiveness because I have misplaced my identity and I'm in trouble because of it and I am throwing my life before your mercy. Is that you? I'm sharing you my own prayers, your pastor's own prayers when I find my identity where it shouldn't be. And you know what? God is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness and sin and cleanse us from all of our sins. And you get up and you start to run again. Find your identity in Jesus Christ. There is no other hope. Father, we thank you for this time together. This is a challenging passage. We realize that factions make their way into your own church, Lord. Here, the church of Corinth, one that you purchased through your son's blood, one that you had set apart from this world, made your own people, they have a factious living, a factious life. They're robbing you of your glory, yet but you're patient and you take your word and you exhort them and they do turn from this and they repent, Lord. And so we too, Lord, we can find our identity in a million different things but you, Lord. 
And so, Father, we're calling ourselves through your word to repentance this morning. That we would not try to identify ourselves in anything outside of Christ. And Lord, when we do, we ask you to give us short accounts. May we remember that that's not going to work. That's going to fail. Everything's going to come undone. And may we turn from that, Lord. It's often pride. It's just pride, Lord. We don't want to believe your word. We don't want to obey it. We want to do things our way. And so we find ourselves lost and misappropriating our, our identification. So Lord, we ask this morning, we confess that our sin robs you of glory. It veils what our right position with you really is. We, we confess that we allow other things on our hearts, Lord, that want to rule there. But Lord, we also confess that you are the faithful one. You said that you would forgive us. You sent your son and he bled for us, Lord. And so Christian, Christians today can plead and receive forgiveness of our sins. And so, Lord, I pray for myself, for each and every one in here, Lord, that we'd be right with you, that we would not find ourselves identified in the things of the world, that we would consistently find our identity in Jesus Christ and, oh, the sweet unity we'll have at home and at church. Lord, we beg you for that. Strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with me for a closing benediction? Dear gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and light and mercy that you have shown in our lives. We thank you that our identity and our unity is not in this world, but in your Son who has given us perfect identity and brought us into unity with his bride. Forgive us, Lord, when we establish our identity in the things of the world because it destroys our unity with each other. Cause us daily to identify with your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we may walk in harmony with you and with each other so that we may bring glory to the only one who deserves it, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.